Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So today we're starting a new book, Refactoring the Ruby Edition. So this was written by Jay Fields, Shane Harvey, Martin Fowler, and there was also input from Kent Beck. And I think it'd be quite a mouthful to say all of those four names every single time we refer to something they've written. So we're going to stick with Fields and Harvey, since they did most of the work in producing this Ruby edition, translating Fowler's original Java-based refactoring book. We're going to take a quick look at the forward and the preface before discussing the first six pages of chapter one. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. So new books are on. How did you find the reading? I found it a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I was honestly, I was intimidated by this book because I feel like it's one of those books that everyone's been talking about since I first you know, really got into Ruby. And I thought it was going to be this scary. It's pretty long, too. It's pretty thick. And so mm. I thought it was going to be this scary, intimidating thing that was going to be a struggle to follow. And I was pleasantly surprised at how readable it was. Yes, for me, I remember when I started web development and this book was being mentioned and I asked someone about whether I should read it or not. And the response was like, mm, there are probably other few books you could read. And then maybe once you've read Pooder and probably understood it and some other stuff, then you can go on to a factory. Mm. So I did feel like it was, a, you know, it was like the next level up to all the sort of things that we've been reading so far. So it was definitely quite cool to be able to read it and, and grasp what it was saying, particularly as we stepped through the initial refactoring. Yes. And the other thing I really liked about it is I felt like it was really a story, you know, and, and I'm saying all this given that we've only read 17 pages into chapter one. So hopefully that will persist throughout the whole book. But I really like that it didn't feel like a reference book the way that I was initially worried it was going to. It wasn't here's, you know, here's the problem. Here's the solution. OK, let's move on. It was really unpacking and walking us through in a similar style to the way that uh, Sandy and Katrina wrote 99 Bottles. Uh, I think a little bit lighter, maybe a little bit more conversational than that, but still that process of starting with this problem, walking us through, making little iterations, and explaining the steps along the way. Well, I think what we're going to find from reading the about this book section is that it's going to have elements of both the books that we've read so far. So Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely got that 99 bottles feel of the story when we step through some refactorings. But I think there are also going to be some catalog reference like sections that are going to be similar to Confident Ruby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's start with the Ford. So this was written by Chad Fowler, right? Yes. This is the Chad Fowler that you recently saw give a talk about the death of Ruby, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's exactly what I was thinking as I was reading this. So one, I didn't realize who wrote it until I think a little bit you know, further down. I said, oh, it's Chad Fowler. And when uh, I spoke at Rocky Mountain Ruby a few months ago, he was one of the speakers. He did a great job. It was really entertaining, really fun. But the message was very much a Ruby is a toy language, move on to something better which is maybe not the right talk for a Ruby-based conference, but it's fine. Uh, so it was very entertaining to read this where he talks about how he's been a Ruby programmer for a really long time and it's thrilling to see refactoring being done. And, like, you know, he's, he's really praising it and knowing how he feels about it now. Uh, yeah, that was, that was very funny for me. There are a couple of interesting tidbits 
in in this forward so this idea that your know, software development is a process and that Chad says it's a series of small decisions and actions all made through the filter of a set of values and the desire to create something excellent and I found that interesting because I wondered whether everyone who was involved in software development would have that same view so I highlighted that same section as well but I had a, a slightly different reaction. One, I, I like the emphasis on the small decisions. I think there's another point in the section where he talks about making really you know tiny steps and, and the emphasis on this gradual, iterative, small, bite-sized, uh, you know, actions that get us to a place where everyone's happy. But the thing, I found it very surprising that mm-hmm. this way of thinking was surprising. You know, because I'm thinking, okay, so if you don't mm. believe that, you know, refactoring or, or you know, software development is a series of small decisions and actions made through a filter of set values, then what do you think it is? Like, I, I, was, I was unclear about what the opposite side of that argument would be. Well, I guess I was thinking that I think that often people do their day-to-day jobs and they don't stop and think about, like, what are the values mm. behind what I'm doing? And mm-hmm. am I always really striving towards this desire to create something excellent or am I just trying to go through day by day and I guess that it sort of reminded me of this difference between people who really focus on the craft and and mm-hmm. other people who might just say well this is just my day job mm-hmm. yeah so this line that he says so becoming a software developer is less about what good code is than about how to make good code and that is a point where I thought because I, I always felt like the argument um against refactoring or you know the people who maybe aren't don't understand the value of it was simply that this idea of good code bad code was not as important or maybe just not as you know reasonable as just writing code that worked yeah i thought i thought the conversation was more about code that worked versus code that was good and this mm-hmm. suggests that the argument is more about what de- like defining what good code is and the process of making it which is not the way that I understood it. So that was, it was interesting to me to get that insight. So yes, I see what you mean totally about this idea between striving towards good code or whether that's something that, or whether that's something that's misguided almost in some cases. I also highlighted this sentence myself because he talks about how just becoming a software developer, like the minimum is this idea of being able to make good code. But I feel like from the discussions that I've heard and different perspectives that I've been exposed to, I feel like people would say that the distinction between a good software developer and a great software developer is one that can take code that's not great and make it great. And Mm. so, and I guess that ties into what you were saying about is the debate about, oh, I can craft this nice piece of code and what's the value that you place on that as opposed to, well, my code works. Mm-hmm. Because there are many right. people who I would say might say they're not great at refactoring, but they're a software developer. Mm-hmm. And they so, make things that work and people use it. And that's fine. Yes. Whereas this almost implies that, well, if you don't know the way to, to you know, to transform that code into good code. And, and again, you have to ask ourselves what is what is good code, then it, does, it implies you're not a software developer. Yes, yes, that's very, very interesting. And even the next line says that software doesn't just spring into being. It's created by humans one keystroke at a time. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's as if Chad is saying that the definition of a software developer is not about making things that work. It's about the process of making it good. Yes, 
And the the forward ends on this little story about how Chad would carry around this book as a sort of weapon and a shield <laughs> when he was working with teams. And so it really set the tone of the book as like, you're about to be equipped with something great. Yeah. So, you know, go forth and learn and enjoy. So I was I was excited to crack on. Yeah. And it also makes you wonder how many feathers he ruffled in <laughs> in that viewpoint and in having that book and in defining software development in that way. I'd be I'd be curious to hear from developers who read that forward, you know, years ago and who uh, reacted to it. Oh, yes. And just to clarify for anyone that doesn't know. So the, the first version of refactoring was written in 1999 by Martin Fowler and it was filled with Java examples and so this book was the a rewritten version in 2009 translating all of the examples into Ruby examples. Mm -hmm. So next we move on to the preface and this time it's actually Martin Fowler who is talking about it. And this preface is, it's pretty helpful. It's a little, it's a little long. It's kind of longer than I thought it was going to be, but it breaks down mm. into sections like what is refactoring and what's in this book, uh, refactoring specifically in Ruby, who this book is for. Um, and then I, I like um, the section that says, I have the original book. Should I get this? Probably not, uh, which is very honest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so it really lays out, you know, kind of what to expect in this book and, and what to really get out of it. So I appreciated that. It's probably worth reading out what they say the definition of refactoring is. So mm -hmm. and I think we've definitely had this in 99 Bottles and maybe in Confident Ruby 2, but can't hurt to go over it one more time. So mm -hmm. refactoring is the process of changing a software system in such a way that it does not alter the external behavior of the code, yet improves its internal structure. Yes. And I'm so happy that that definition did not surprise me. <laughs> yes <laughs> i'm very relieved that i read that and go okay that is what i thought it was this whole time that's great yeah what i did find interesting is that he talks about how many people find the phrase improving the design after it has been written to be strange and there's this line that i, I thought was really poignant and also very sad where it says the code slowly sinks from engineering to hacking so it's almost as if before refactoring became very popular, you start off with this magnificent idea, this beautiful design, and then just by virtue of having to add things and change things, the integrity of that system, the very structure, fades away, breaks down. And the idea that that is expected, and it sounds like that was pretty acceptable. And I think that I've heard echoes of that in a lot of conversations as well. When I did the um, the Pudnik workshop with Sandy Matz uh, a while ago, one of the kind of early complaints, problems that we talked about was how, yes, you have these great, mighty, beautiful ideas of what it's going to be, but then you, you know, you have deadlines and you have user complaints and you have, you know, CEOs and investors, you just have so much pressure on that code that the value of keeping it well-designed is outweighed by just urgency and needing to get things done. And so I don't think that that concern of, you know, sinking from engineering to hacking has gone away, but I think that refactoring helps to maybe slow it down or make it less common. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I also feel like there's more, like it's always at conferences, the refactoring talks are really popular. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's because people working on these code bases are very painfully aware that refactoring could make their life easier, but they're often mm -hmm. just not sure how to do it. And so, yeah. so they do, they're, they're aware of this, like you said, this descent into 
hacking and this building up of technical debt and they really want to solve it. But I often, I wonder how many people, you know, go to conferences and listen to these great talks on refactoring, but then as soon as you get back into the office, the other, all the other pressures start sinking in. And before you know it, it's just about mm-hmm. getting through each day and it can be super hard to carve out the time to say, right, we're going to need to do this big refactoring effort until mm-hmm. perhaps things really go wrong and then you have no choice. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. And what I appreciate about this section also is that later on, there's a part that's called Who Should Read This Book? And it says that the book is aimed at a professional programmer, someone who writes code for a living. And that's, I think we both kind of expected that to be the answer. Mm -hmm. But what I found really helpful was that it tries to kind of diagnose your needs and and provide you a solution that matches that. Mm. It says that, you know, yeah, it says that if you, if all you want to do is understand what refactoring is, just read chapter one. If you want to figure out why you should refactor, read the first two chapters. If you want to find where you should refactor, and to me, that was probably one of the most compelling parts, it says read mm-hmm. chapter three. And if all you want to do is actually do the refactoring, read the first four chapters and then do a skip read for the rest of the catalog. So I really, it made me feel uh, less pressure <laughs> that I don't have to, mm-hmm. I'm not expected to necessarily read it back to front. And I think we talked about this um, privately as well, that we're going to see what our needs are and feel free to bounce around um, as we try to solve our own problems and, and learn. I think that's the best way to approach it. So mm-hmm. shall we get on to chapter one? Yep, let's do it. Okay, so chapter one is called Refactoring a First Example. And I love that it starts by uh, Fields and Harvey saying that, you know, if we started with a load of theory or things like that, it's super hard to work out how to apply things. And so they're going to go straight in with an example. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. I'm so excited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to get stuck in straight away. And, and they also make the point that it's about this trade-off between the refactoring that we're going to do is only really effective on a large system But to give you an example, a large system is going to be too complicated. And so although we're going to be looking at a very small set of code, we have to think about it in the context of a larger system because then we really see the value. Yes. And that to me was very uh, similar to the logic behind 99 Bottles, right? Because 99 Bottles said that a lot of these principles really can be um, can be applied to large-scale products and apps that if we were to present that example, you'd be overwhelmed. There's a lot of domain knowledge you need to have first. So we're going to start with the uber, uber simple example of just 99 bottles song and creating that. And so in that similar way here, we're starting off with something very, very simple. I do find the example that we walk through to be very entertaining because mm-hmm. uh, it's not really a popular thing anymore. Uh, yes. we are yeah, <laughs> we don't we do this anymore calculating, we don't do this anymore we are calculating and printing a statement of a customer's charges at a video store so I had to I had to uh, kind of think back to my days when I, I would go to Blockbuster and Hollywood videos and go wait what was that process like um, and I do remember the categories of a regular movie and a new release and a children's which nowadays seem you know, a little arbitrary, at least the regular and children's, you know, seem a little arbitrary. But yeah, those were the three categories that we had. So this brought me back to a a younger point in my in my life. And um, I thought it was a very cute example. This reminds me of a time when I was 16 trying to take out a 12 film and they said, you don't look like you're 12. And I was like, I'm 16. (laughs) And we had to go, I had to go find an adult to vouch for me. (gasps) Just wanted to watch my 12 rated film. Oh my God. What was the movie? Do you remember? And I, and I remember saying to the woman, do I look 11? 
because I'm 16. Do I really look 11? She was like, I'm not here to judge. But you're judging by not giving me this film. She was, she was definitely judging you. There was lots yeah. of judgment for sure. Do you remember what the movie was called? No, it was probably just some silly high school drama or something. I just remember being so tame and being like, I Mm -hmm. cannot believe that I have to go home and get a parent (laughs) because you don't think I'm up to 12 years of age. (laughs) So crazy. That's funny. So in this code, we have, we actually have like a, a decent amount of code to go through. We start off with movie, which is described as a simple data class. And so we have class movie, and then we have the constant regular set to zero, the constant new release set to one, the constant children's set to two. And then we have an adder reader called title and an adder accessor called price code. And the last thing we have in our movie class is a def initialize, which takes in a title and a price code as arguments and set those to instant variables, also called title and price code. So that's the movie class. And we also have a rental class. And this represents a customer renting a movie. And so this has two attribute readers, movie and days rented. And then there's an initialize method taking movie and days rented as arguments. And then it sets those to their respective instance variables. Yes. And then we have our customer class, which represents the customer of the store. And here we have class customer with an adder reader of name. And then we have a definitionalized, and that takes in our name argument and sets that to our name instance variable. And then we also have an instance variable called rentals, which is set to an empty array. And then we have our last method for our customer class, which is def add rental, which takes in an argument called arg. And we are shoving that arg into at rentals, which as we said, was set to our empty array in our initialized method. Can I just say, I love the way you said shoving. Because <laughs> it is the shuffle Isn't operator. Isn't it called? I don't think I, yeah. It is indeed the shuffle operator, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, we're shoving in. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, sh- yeah <laughs> stuff great. it in. Shove it in. Yeah. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm very visual with my yeah. understanding of code. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And then we have the star of the show, the oh, statement boy. method. Mm-hmm. This is a biggie. So just to give a sense of what's going on in here. So we start by setting two things to zero, something called total amount and something called frequent renter points. And then we have something called result, which is equal to a string, which says rental record four, and then we interpolate in the name. And then we have a new line. And then we go to our rentals instance variable, which if you remember was originally an empty array. And then on each of the rentals that end, that we've shoved in there, we start with zero. We have an incrementer called zero and it's called this amount. And then the code determines the amounts for each line. So we look at whether the rental is, so we look at the price code of the rental and if it's a regular film, so if it's on the regular, then we add two to this amount. And then if we've rented it for more than two days, then we have this sum which works out how many days over two days that we've rented the film for. And then we multiply that number by one and a half and add that onto this amount. If it's a new release, then we multiply how many days we've rented that film for by three and add that onto this amount. And if it's a children's film, then we add on 1.5 to this amount 
And we also have a an addition depending on how many days over three days that we've rented it for. And again, so for example, if we rented it for six days, then we will do six minus three multiplied by 1.5 and add that onto this amount. So that's the first section. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a case statement for determining the amounts depending on which type of film you've got. Then we move on to the frequent renter points. So these are like your, your you know, your points for loyalty. And for each rental, you get one frequent renter point. And then you get a bonus if you take out a new release for more than two days. So, so we have a statement that says, if the rental movie price code is equal to movie.new release, so that's the constant, and the element.days rented is greater than one, then you add on another frequent renter point. Nice. Then the next step is showing the figures for this rental. So this is going to show how much. So this is going to show what our total price has amounted to. And so then we take that result that we defined early on in the method. And I said it was the name of the rental, but it's actually the name of the customer. Uh, because yeah. Yes, because now we add on the name of the rental to the string. So we've got element.movie.title. And then we also add on the value of this amount. And these are tab separated. So we've got backslash T's in between each thing. And then at the end of printing the amount, we also have a new line. And then we also have a variable called total amount. And we add on the current amount for that particular rental onto total amount. And then you have your footer lines. So you take result and you put in, you add in another section, another line. And this says amount owed is total amount. So this has been adding on all the prices for all of the rentals that you've had. And then you also print out what you've earned in frequent renter points. So you've got a sentence that says you earned, we interpolate in the value of frequent renter points. And then we say frequent renter points. So for example, you've earned five frequent renter points. And then we return that whole string at the end of the method. And that is the end of the statement method. Wow, that's a lot of stuff that's happening in that one method. Want to guess where we're going to start refactoring? <laughs> yep. So uh, one of the first things that the book asks is, what are your impressions about the design of this program? And so I'm going to ask you, what were your impressions about the design of this program? Pretty similar to what you just said, which was, wow, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. I had to definitely stop and read things again and again to check that I was understanding what was going on. And then I realized, oh, this is just printing a receipt. But yeah. I had to work out what was going on. Things were not helpfully named. So the rental was called an element. Yep. This amount was a bit confusing. And then I got to total amount and you work out, oh, yeah, so it's just adding up this particular amount at this time. And so, yeah, I could just see there were a lot of things that were going on. It was so long as well. It was such a fat method. Mm -hmm. yep. I mean, how many lines have we got going on there? 30 or so? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also it needed comments as well, which I thought was interesting. Because I've always heard people say that when you need comments to describe what a bit of code is doing, then perhaps you haven't expressed the code very well. Mm -hmm. And so th I thought of that with all the little, the subject headers, which were very helpful for giving me context before I dove into the next paragraph. You know what's interesting is looking at the comments now, I'm realizing 
that they're probably really good clues about what are self-contained enough to extract into their own methods mm. and what those methods should be called. Mm, good one. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So we talk about here in the book how this is not well-designed and definitely not object-oriented. But then we talk about, okay, does it actually matter? And I really like this because it it approaches this the same way that uh, 99 Bottles approached it, where it said, okay, so this is wrong, but do we actually need to change it? Because just because it looks ugly or we're not comfortable doesn't always mean that refactoring it is the right thing to do. And here we say that it's fine that it's ugly because the program works until we want to change the system. So we're reminded again in, in the, the third book now that refactoring matters most and that's when we should really think about it when it actually would make our coding lives easier because we have a new feature, because we have a new change to the system. Yes. And so in this case, we actually want the statement printed in HTML so that it can be shown on a website, for example, as opposed to in the command line. And in fact, there's also a second change. So we've got two changes in one go. And that's that the users of this system are going to also want to change the way they classify movies. But, and here's the little spanner in the works, they also don't know exactly how they want to change the way they classify movies. So this has already got me thinking already of this idea of, um, what's it, closed for modification, open for extension? Yes. Mm -hmm. You need to be open to any change that could come along but you don't quite know what it is. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it highlights that the biggest person who benefits from making these changes is you. You benefit because if you don't refactor and if you don't make this a little bit more uh, readable and, and break it up and just make it better, then you're going to be the one that suffers because when your users request new things, it's going to be very difficult for you to make those changes. Yes, and so going in onto page six and the section called the first step in refactoring, I really like where, so Fields and Harvey say, you know, we're going to need to have a solid set of tests. Mm -hmm. And I love the explanation where they say, I'm still human and still make mistakes. <laughs> it's really that simple. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just have a test suite. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. And I like. There's also a bit where it says you're not going to be taken seriously as a Ruby developer unless you use Test Unit or RSpec to write tests as you write code. And I definitely felt like some years ago when I was learning, there was still a bit of, um, oh, we test or we don't test. Even when I was leaving boot camp and me and my fellow grads were, you know, looking for jobs, and you'd have some people say, oh yeah, they say they don't test. Or, but I feel like in today's today, like looking for a new job or. Or like no company is out there saying, oh, we don't test. We don't believe in tests. Mm -hmm. even, even if they may not be doing very good tests, everyone's saying, oh, we definitely test. In the last two years, the, the companies that I've talked to who say they don't test feel very guilty about it, which I think is is probably a good thing. You know, it's like a sheepish, we know we should, but we really don't. Or we used to at some point, now we don't anymore, but it's not a... I don't feel like there's a case to be made for testing the way that there probably was, you know, back when this um this book was first written. Yeah, there was actually there's only one company I've ever heard who proudly announced that they didn't test in a in a talk. Really? And that was because their whole business is around producing apps for celebrities that are made to be viral for 24 hours to a week and then they disappear never to be seen again. Huh. So they, they don't test. So they've done stuff for like Madonna, um, like big music shows, 
one of their proudest things is that they turned down Kanye West to approach them. But that's their whole deal. So they're like, we don't need to test because our stuff disappears in like a week anyway. <laughs> okay, I guess. <laughs> So for this week, we got a really solid introduction, we read the forward, and we introduced this problem that we're going to refactor. And next week, we're going to dive into what are those first steps and what that final code will look like. I'm looking forward to it. So in this reading, we started by defining refactoring. So we want to know, is that how you understand the term? Or do you see it as something a bit different? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio!